0: Master Brewers brings you interviews with the industry's best and brightest in brewing science, technology, and operations.
1: This podcast is proudly sponsored by the packaging division of Micromatic, the leader in keg spear quality and innovation. Let our veteran technical support staff provide you with the training and information you need to safely service your kegs. For more information, visit Micromatic.com.
2: Hello, my name is John Geritano, and I'm with Inland Island Yeast Laboratories in Denver, Colorado. This week on the show,
0: Yeast Fundamentals. With all the new breweries out there, it's time to make sure we're all mastering the basics required for producing high quality beers consistently.
2: I've got a little Fisher Price microscope that you can actually count cells with. I mean, it's a toy, but it's got that same magnification. So.
0: Pitch rate has a tremendous influence on fermentation performance and beer flavor. It's often said that brewers don't make beer, but yeast does. Talk about the p- importance of getting pitch rates right.
2: Well, to get through any given fermentation, you need a certain quantity of yeast to be able to metabolize the sugars and turn it into alcohol. Um, drastically underpitching can cause major issues like stalled out fermentations or potentially like higher ester formation than the brewer was expecting um, over pitching has its issues as well um, not usually as bad for the beer but you can get some off flavor or um, undesirable fermentation uh, properties with over as well so um, really it's kind of the most important thing to get right uh, when trying to ferment a beer because like you were saying uh, the yeast is what's actively turning all the sugars into alcohol and Without them being healthy and, and able to, to metabolize all the sugars, you're going to end up with either a too sugary of beer or um, it, there's, there's many other issues that can that can be caused by that.
0: When you get troubleshooting calls from brewers who've got major fermentation problems,
2: how often have they simply underpitched? That is, I'd say, it, I don't know, 60, 70 percent of uh, the calls that we get. And, uh, it, you know, it it happens a lot in repitching um a lot of brewers aren't actually collecting the yeast that they're repitching into another vessel and taking a cell count and making sure it's what they want um a lot of them are just kind of either sending it from one cone to another or you know this is all we were able to collect so that's all we pitched and we've got a huge issue um and you know, there's there's some yeast suppliers out there that aren't uh, providing enough cells, and that causes a huge issue for brewers as well.
0: Yeah, I want to talk about that because that's something that has caused me a great deal of frustration over the years. Um, you know, some yeast labs will sell quote pitchable quantities, uh, but if you do the math, you're actually under pitching in in some cases significantly. Uh, brewer, brewers really need to plan brews uh, or propagations in advance and around a specific number of yeast cells. Why don't more yeast labs standardize around providing a specific number of cells?
2: It costs money. Um, I think the biggest thing is, I mean, there's, there's one, more product is more money, um, as well as shipping rates. Um, some of the other labs out there will Usually they'll quote what they're actually giving you. And if you try to order a pitch at a certain gravity, they'll tell you, you know, oh, well, you know, I know you're doing a 10 barrel batch, but you need to buy a 20 barrel pitch. Um, We try to kind of gear our pitches towards a 15 Plato beer because we figured that, you know, craft beer is usually at least 15 Plato or 1058 if you use specific gravity. Um, The reasons, you know, I don't want to really like, you know, try to guess why they're, they're under-pitching everybody, but really, for, from a brewer's standpoint, um, it is very important to know what the lab that you're buying your yeast from is claiming their pitchable quantity is, and then knowing that you either have to do the math yourself, or you need to talk to somebody about how what size pitchable you need to get. Um, a lot of yeast labs out there will claim something like you know 7 million cells per mil per degree Play-Doh. Or seven million cells per mil, which works out to, you know, if you're brewing a 10 Plato beer, I guess that would work out. But really, most people are not uh, brewing that small of a beer. And so knowing that helps make sure that you're not under pitching uh, from the get go.
0: Definitely. That's very important. Okay, uh, there may be some startup brewers out there listening who aren't counting yeast cells yet. Walk us through the options for tackling this job.
2: Um, Well, I mean, the first thing and the easiest thing that you can do is go out and get a microscope. Um, One of the uh, biggest points that I try to make is that in order to just count cells, we're not talking about doing QC. We're not talking about being able to identify bacteria. We're talking about being able to see yeast cells in a hemocytometer. You don't need a $2,000 microscope. You need a microscope that has at least a 40X um, objective. And that is... I think you'd be more hard-pressed to find a microscope that doesn't at least have a 40x um i've done cell counts with uh, many different microscopes out there i've even showed uh, uh some brewers that i've worked with i've got a little fisher price microscope that you can actually <laughs> count cells with i mean it's a toy but it's got that same magnification so my first cells cell are, count. yeah yeah exactly <laughs> yeah uh, this was i think to, to look at water samples or you know bugs under a microscope but you know, it works. And I guess the point that I was trying to make to everybody is that you don't have to spend thousands of dollars in order to, to be able to do, you know, even this most basic level of quality control. Um, you can buy brand new microscopes off the Internet nowadays for under three hundred dollars that are well within range of being able to do everything that you would need to do in order to do a cell count. Um, the next most important piece of equipment is called a hemocytometer. And those usually run more than people would think. A little piece of glass is gonna cost, you know, I wouldn't buy one that was cheaper than $100. Um, they can get a little more expensive than that, but what a he- hemocytometer does is breaks down um, a known volume of a sample into a grid and allows you to count. And then you take the number of cells that you're getting during that count and extrapolate that through an equation that gives you what the total amount of cells that you have in your, in your sample. Um, I wouldn't want to buy a cheap one of those and have the grid be off, Um, you know, for the same reason. There's just certain pieces of equipment that it's important to get. So a nice hemostatometer is something I'd splurge on. But, you know, even then you're talking $150. So for $500, you should be able to do cell counts in your brewery um, and have a pretty good idea of what your yeast is doing before you pitch it, during fermentation, before you're going to try to repitch it into another beer, which can save you just ton of time and uh headaches uh during fermentation.
0: I know this is probably a personal preference, but I was curious if you have an opinion on hemocytometers that have the little V notch for loading versus not. I I know some very smart people uh who would argue um on either side of that uh that debate.
2: I guess I'm versatile. Um I I you know I definitely notice what the difference is. I think it's it's definitely important to know where you need to load it because I've seen people with the V notch trying to load it the other way. Um, through the little notch, you know, there's a notch in the front and there's the two little dams along the side. Um, you don't want to try to load it in the front if you've got the dams in the side and vice versa. I think that um, as long as you're doing things right, I, I've never seen a difference what the the, the end result is. Um, just knowing your piece of equipment though is important.
0: How about some of the benefits, um, the other, besides knowing how many cells you have, uh, could you talk about some of the other benefits that come along with regular cell counting, such as just simply getting familiar with your particular yeast?
2: Well, knowing, you know, so it goes beyond just knowing what the total number of cells is, because if you have you know X amount of cells and they're all dead, that doesn't do you any good either. Um, so being able to kind of track, I like to say a lot of people get uh, uh, the ability to do cell counting and they only ever do it like with the slurry that they pulled off of one batch that's going into another. I think that it's important to take cell counts throughout fermentation to be able to understand not only like, you know, have the cells grown properly? Um, are they happy within that fermentation? Are they going to be ready to pitch again? Um, but knowing that you're going to need to buy a new pitch, you know, four or five days before that fermentation is done is a very powerful tool because you can helps you with scheduling, Um, It helps make sure that you're not pitching, you know, if your viability is in like the low 60s at high krausen, then I would not suggest reusing that yeast again. And that's something that, you know, most people wouldn't even know because they're not taking the time to look at what is going on in the fermentation during fermentation. They see bubbles in a bucket and they say, okay, sweet. Yeah. Things are happening. But um, that doesn't mean necessarily everything's going well. Um, So, you know, just being able to, take cell counts constantly throughout fermentation, throughout every fermentation um, is a very powerful tool. And my brewers that I work with that, um, that do that, they sleep every night without having to wonder. They know exactly what's going on in their brewery.
0: Yeah, and I bet you don't get so many calls from
2: those guys. Yep. That's, that's hundred percent. It I, I, I like to say that the guys that are doing that are the, the guys I hear from the least, which is a good thing to be honest. I mean, like I love talking to my customers by all means, but I don't, you know, think that they like calling me when they have a problem and there's a certain amount of things that I can do. But you know, if you call me and you've got a stalled out fermentation, I go, okay, well, what was the cell count going in? How viable are the cells? Um, a lot of times they have no answers for me. They, they yeah. blindly pitched, you know, a, a slurry of sludge that from one to another, and they have no idea. So even for me to begin to start troubleshooting something, I need some sort of numbers or something to go off of, or else, I mean, my guess is as good as yours. Right.
0: Yeah, and I really recommend, especially anybody out there who, who has flagship beers or beers that they're producing regularly, it really is worth creating a fermentation curve where you do those daily cell counts and, and plot it out over a few different batches so you can kind of really get a feel for, okay, what should my normal, you know, peak cells be so that when you do have a, a batch that's abnormal, you know, you know how, how far off it is and, and, and can, that can help you troubleshoot a lot. Okay. Yep. Let's... Um, Let's talk a little bit about yeast stresses. Could, yep. you, t- could you talk about that and, and be sure to get into sort of the synergistic effect of m- multiple stress factors?
2: Right. So, I mean, there are multiple things in a, in a fermentation that can add stress to a yeast. And most of them people know about. Obviously, pH is going to be one thing. Um, anything lower than like 3 or, or even around 3 is going to add some stress. Um, and that's, that's pH units. Um, there's also salinity. Um, there's um, temperature, there is alcohol concentration, um, and there's pressure uh, that can be applied. And all of those things alone, like uh, you know, yeast can handle a certain... Different yeast are different, but they can handle a certain amount of uh, alcohol percentage. But alcohol percentage plus pH plus uh, temperature or plus pressure, um, they all are adding stress and it's synergistic it's not like they they add stress independent of one another they are all contributing to the viability loss of that particular yeast so it's good to have an idea of um all of those parameters and what might be going on to the yeast at that time i mean there's a lot of brewers out there that um they'll think oh well you know the happiest place for my yeast to be is i crash it out and i leave it in the cone um, and you know the yeast was at whatever viability was before I crashed it, so it should be fine down there. Um, the cone's not, you know, the worst place, but you now you've got all the yeast sitting in the bottom, and you've got hydrostatic pressure in the tank. You've got all the alcohol that was built up from the fermentation. If it was a sour beer, um, you know there there could be a pH issue. Um, temperature wise, not a lot of uh, uh, a lot of fermenters are jacketed around the round part, but not necessarily in the cone. And temperature probes are usually going into the, the larger, like I'd say, body of the fermenter, not necessarily down in the cone. So the temperature in the middle of that yeast cake in the cone may be higher than what you think it is.
0: Coming up, some fundamental cause and effect you can use to influence your fermentations. I'm John Bryce, and you're listening to the Master Brewers Podcast from the Master Brewers Association of the Americas.
1: This podcast is proudly sponsored by the packaging division of Micromatic. In 2015, Micromatic introduced the concept of a 10-year, 10-color coating of CO2 valves as a tool for brewers to proactively separate kegs which are due for spear service or replacement. Industry veterans John Graber and Steve Brott are available for workshops and presentations to ensure safe and effective maintenance of your Micromatic Spears. For more information, visit Micromatic.com.
0: Here's what's coming up on the Master Brewers calendar. Don't miss the Gluten, Beer, and Related Regulations webinar on November 28th, the Intro to Sake and Sake Brewing webinar December 6th, or the draft line Cleaning Best Practices webinar January 16th. December is a slow month now that all the fall district meetings are wrapped up, with one exception, the District St. Louis Holiday Party December 1st. District St. Louis also meets January 18th at Anheuser-Busch Beth. District New England meets in New Hampshire January 19th and 20th. The 2018 District Ontario Technical Conference is January 24th through the 26th in Niagara Falls. District Northern California holds its technical conference February 2nd at Sierra Nevada and Chico. And District St. Louis meets at O'Fallon Brewery on February 15th. Check the full calendar of events at mbaa.com for more details or to find a district meeting near you. Back to the show. How about some tips in general for yeast storage, uh, both you know time and conditions?
2: Yeah, absolutely. Um, I would say no more than 24 hours after you've crashed the tanks, as you try to pull the yeast off of that cone? And if you're really good at, at um, doing your planning, I mean, obviously being able to crash it, do a cone-to-cone transfer to another beer. That's probably going to be the healthiest thing. That's the least amount of uh, issues they can have with contamination and different vessels and everything. However, having a yeast brink is a very uh, helpful tool because not everybody can have an open tank or be able to brew uh, with whatever particular yeasts when they really want to pull it off that tank. Um, Yeast brinks are, you know, they can come in many different uh, shapes and sizes. I would tend to go to whatever the most simple Uh, vessel that is as cleanable as possible um any you know type of agitators or extra little ports and stuff that go into a yeast brink are just areas where contamination or you know yeast from one yeast to another can get kind of held up and if you're using different strains in your brewery which most uh, brewers are the brink could be a point where one yeast passes from one to another However, uh, storing yeast in a brink allows you to take a cell count. You can feed it. Um, you want to make sure that your yeast brink is vented. Uh, I've seen situations where brewers, you know, they'll pull yeast into like a corny keg. And in that corny keg, it, uh, there was nothing to relieve pressure. And so the yeast just slowly built up pressure in there. And a week later, a pitch that was 100% viable went down to 0%. Just totally killed everything that was in there. Um, so that's something to, to keep an eye on um, as far as storage purposes go. Uh, but yeah, going back to, I guess, you know, 24 hours and the bigger the tank, the faster you need to get it out of the, uh, the cone because you, the hydrostatic pressure really does become an issue when you start getting into like, you know, the 30, 60, 100 barrel uh, fermenters.
0: Okay, let's talk about fermentation flavor byproducts and how we can control them. There are a lot of great resources listeners could use to take deeper dives on this topic. For example, Greg Casey's fishbone diagrams, which I mentioned back on episode 58. But let's discuss some high-level cause and effect in regards to esters and higher alcohols. Uh, Talk to us about what happens as gravity increases.
2: As gravity increases, you're going to get a higher ester formation, and I think that's usually caused by stress. Um, The the higher the original gravity, the more... um, stress the yeast is going to be under as it produces alcohol and usually it does a little bit less growth um so i've talked to brewers that there's a couple ways you can hit that gravity it can be like an all malt uh grain and just end up being you know like a whopper straight out the gate um if you're looking to minimize ester production and still get a high ABV beer feeding uh you know something like dextrose or a simple sugar later in fermentation after the yeast has been allowed to grow will help um limit some of that Uh, but sometimes you're looking to get more ester formation so that's that you know a high gravity beer is another way to do that
0: okay how about aeration what effect does that have
2: um so the greater aeration um the less ester formation that you're gonna have and uh, you know you gotta look at that like the more oxygen yeast needs oxygen to grow and it's going to uh get more growth if you aerate more if that makes sense
0: it does okay yeah. how about temperature
2: temperature is definitely going to be and that's probably the the most straightforward way if you want to increase your ester formation increase the temperature and that's just straight up um it's a, it's a really easy one that's an easy one to play with too cuz you everybody's got a dial on the side of their fermenter so um increasing that is, is always going to you know bump that up get a little bit fruitier and I've talked to a lot of brewers that are just, oh, you know, I do all my fermentations at 68 because that's what I'm used to. But I'd love to get a yeast that would have more, uh, you know, a little bit like more fruitiness to it. And the first thing I tell them is like, you're using a great yeast for that. Just bump up the temp a little bit and you're there.
0: So obviously we've got increasing not only esters, but also fusel alcohols there. Yes, um, yes. Let's move on to pH. How about, how about that? How does, uh, the, how, what's the relationship between pH and, and esters and higher alcohols look like?
2: You know, so I, I don't think it, it really changes the ester formation with pH. Um, but with the fusel alcohols, um, it definitely will. And I think that's also an, a stress thing. Um, they're not, this is more stress. It's not going to go and clean up um, any kind of fusels that is being created um, under a, a high pH or, uh, or, I guess, lower pH situation.
0: And how about pitch rate? We talked about that earlier. Um, I- how does that affect those two
2: under pitching is going to increase ester formation. Um, and I mean, you just look at it like the, the typical, like hefeweizen. Um, if you're looking to get a hefeweizen that's, you know, got more banana flavor to it. Um, you, you under it and you under oxygenate it and it gets like very little growth and there's very little yeast there. And it just kicks out that like big banana bomb, uh, versus trying to get a clovey hefeweizen, you know, you do the proper pitch rate and the proper aeration and it, it pushes it more towards that. Uh, how about zinc Um, zinc increasing zinc is going to increase esters um, is going to also increase fusels
0: all right and then we've got a lot of folks out there now nowadays that are using um, multiple uh, fill fermenters Uh, and that's an important thing for brewers that maybe are transitioning from a a single batch to, uh, you know, to a multi-fill fermenter and maybe don't realize just how much of an impact that might have on, on the flavor of their beer. So why don't you talk about that one?
2: Yeah. And I mean, this goes, there's a lot of things that that's going to, um, change is uh, when you're doing multiple fermenter fills, um, if you can do say two in a day, um, then I would say, you know, you, you do your regular level of oxygenation, um, on both batches and you're going to end up at roughly the same point um you are promoting more growth so you know you're you're say say you're on a seven barrel system and you've got 15 barrel tanks well you want to double fill those tanks and so um oxygenating the first batch pitching the yeast in there brew again oxygenate the second batch throw it in you're going to increase there there will be maybe a subtle increase in in ester formation um, during that point but uh, overall, I've seen good results with that. Um, the, the problems I've seen is when the second uh, batch is not oxygenated, so you're not actually getting any growth with the wort that you're throwing in on that second time. And then you may have an underpitch. Um, basically, you didn't get enough growth with the oxygen that was in that first batch, and you can you know, result in stalled-out fermentations and uh, higher ester formation than you were expecting. And uh, there are a lot of other uh, issues that can happen there. Um, I do have brewers that are brewing into 20 barrel batches with their seven barrel system, so they're triple batching. In that case, um, usually they knock out two the first day and and one the second. I would not oxygenate the second batch if it's been longer than 24 hours, because once you start, once the yeast goes from a growth mode into a fermentative state um, and it starts producing alcohol, that's when you can get off flavor with oxygenation. And I think that I would rather risk. I think that I would rather risk that I got enough growth on the first go around and that I'm good to go than, you know, creating off flavors right from the get go with that, uh, that third batch.
0: Okay. And how about, uh, how about back pressure or head pressure? Uh, there's some folks out there that do pressurized fermentations uh, strategically. Uh, yep. what, what, is that, what effect is that having on esters and higher alcohols?
2: that's going to be hard on the yeast in general um i have seen that um recently and i mean if you can you know if the yeast gets through a batch and everything stays healthy then you know i think that's a fine tool to use um just know that anything above 2 psi is going to start is going to create a stress on the yeast anything higher than 20 psi is going to uh start like immediately killing the yeast and if you have they add together. It's not or hydrostatic pressure and the overall pressure in the tank is going to add together um, to give you what the actual pressure is on that yeast. So yeast sitting in the bottom of the tank is under more pressure than at the top of the tank. tanking. Um, just off the top of my head, two pounds is roughly two pounds of hydrostatic pressure is created by roughly about six feet of uh, of fluid. And so you know like a pretty standard seven barrel fermenter sits about six feet high. So, you know, that wouldn't be an issue with the 7, but um, I have had brewers that go from their 7s up to 20s, and that's, that's kind of a different game depending on what the geometry of the tank is.
0: Okay, and so and what impact is, uh, is that pressure having on both um, esters and, and higher alcohols?
2: Um, with increased head pressure, you're actually going to reduce the ester formation um, and reduce the fusel alcohols as well. Um, which, you know, if you're looking to get a nice, clean beer, then that might be a positive. Um, But you got to make sure you're not frying the yeast as well.
0: That was John Gerritano here on the Master Brewers podcast. If you'd like to see more from John, pick up a copy of the 2017 Master Brewers Conference Proceedings from the Master Brewers bookstore at mbaa.com. 130 years ago, Master Brewers was built on the concept of brewers helping each other out so we could all make the best possible beer. That's still true to this day, and it's where a lot of the camaraderie in this industry originated. Master Brewers' award-winning Ask the Brewmasters is the best place to go for troubleshooting, where you'll find the industry's only discussion forum that's moderated for technical accuracy by a team of experts. See what everyone else is talking about, at community.mbaa.com United we brew Did you enjoy today's episode? Would you like us to keep making more? If so, there's a really simple way you can let us know. Subscribe, rate, and review the Master Brewers podcast on iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. It's full
1: of courage. My heart full of rage. I can't get stuck. I can't be losing too much, and then
2: I'm.